Well, welcome to all of you. It's so glad to have you with us, especially you on the live stream. It's great that you've made the effort to join us and uh, it's good to see you. Um, before we, we, we're in the fourth week of our sermon series, What Would Jesus Undo? But before we get there, uh, before I talk about that, I just want to say that next week we begin our sermon series uh, for Easter, our Easter sermon series, where we look at the words of Jesus. And we look at the final words of Jesus as He hung on the cross, and we're looking at how those related to different characters and stories and people from Jesus' life and ministry. So uh, we'll uh, start that next week, and we really hope you can join us for that as well as we lead up into our Easter series. Also, I just want to have a quick message to those of you who are core leaders and core officers. Uh, if you could make contact with us during the week, if you've tuned in and, and going to uh, got all your people to tune in, I want to make contact and have a meeting perhaps sometime this week and we'll work on some innovative ideas and creative things that we might be, do, be able to do together. Uh, so please make contact. So before we get into uh, this week's series, we, as I said, we're in the fourth of our sermon series. Now, you could, if you wanted to, go down in YouTube and binge watch the, the last three of the sermon series and catch up, but don't, don't do that. I'll give you a quick, uh, the series, up until this point. So, we started with the concept that we often ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And sometimes, and that's a great thing to ask ourselves, but sometimes it's important to ask ourselves, what would Jesus undo? What are the things that Jesus would like us to cut out, remove, or undo from our lives. So we uh, started in the first week with Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea from Revelation, in which He challenges them about their apathy, their lukewarmness. And we had a look at what that means and how it might look in our lives, and therefore how we might undo it and bring about more wholehearted living and passionate living for Him. In the second week, uh, Rebecca actually unpacked for us a story in which Jesus challenges the Pharisees about some worship practices that they were doing that had become hollow and empty. And using that as a guide, we had a look at our own lives to see what practices we might have that might become hollow and empty. And we were challenged to live and worship more genuinely and wholeheartedly for God. Then last week, uh, we took Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, and we had a look at where Jesus challenges hypocrisy. In fact, He challenges it quite a lot throughout all of Scripture. Uh, throughout all of His uh, teaching, and He challenges people to live their true selves before God and before others. And uh, we too looked at that and we saw where in our lives are we perhaps not living our true selves and where could Jesus help us to be free and brave and vulnerable to be living our true selves. So that's where we're up to and this week we take a look again as uh, uh, Kyle just read for us from the message, we look at a story from Jesus where He's uh, teaching a parable and about spiritual pride. And I want to begin by saying this is uh, a good sermon for me to be preaching. This is my um, area of improvement. You know when you get a, 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 a report card and sometimes it says you need area of improvement? Well, this is something that I've always struggled with and is my story. Let me tell you a quick uh, story about me. When uh, I was going to training college, in the year before I went to training college, to Bible college, I started studying Bible and theology. And uh, in my first class, I had to write an essay, right? Because that's, of course. Uh, and so, I decided, for whatever reason, that I would ask my wife, who was very good at English and very good at writing, I would ask her to edit 
my paper. She's very good at English. Not, not quite so much right now because she's on medication notes after surgery on Friday. And it's quite, amu quite amusing, actually, if you're in my house. Um, but so back then, I asked her to edit a paper for me. Um, and I thought, you know, there might be a few missed uh, capitals or missed full stops or commas or something like that. And so I asked her to edit this paper and I gave it to her. She gave it back to me absolutely covered in green pen. Now, she was working as an auditor at the time. Normally, it would be red pen, right? But she had a lot of green pens. So I was shocked. I was disappointed. And I might have been a little bit angry at the way she picked on everything I wrote. You know what was worse? The worst was the points in the essay where she'd write a question mark and then she'd write a little sentence that said something like, I don't know what you mean here. Well, this is English. I can write English. How dare she? I was quite upset. And so, what, <laughs> you know what I did? I chucked that in the bin. I edited it myself and I submitted that. Because it's my paper. So mad. Actually, the truth was this. I wanted to prove that I could do it. I didn't want to admit that I wasn't very good at English because it hurt my pride and it hurt my ego. I felt ashamed in, in some small way. I felt like I hadn't measured up to a mark and therefore I was less. Anyone else have that feeling before? Corrected some point? Report card of some sort? Well, I guess you can imagine how it went. I didn't get a very good mark. And uh, the lecturer came to me afterwards and he gave me back the paper and it had some question marks on it in much the same places as it had when Rebecca had done it. Rebecca is such a forgiving and wonderful person that I went back to her and I said, I'm sorry. You know how they say pride often goes before a fall? Well, in my case, it often goes before an apology. And I asked her and I said, look, uh, yeah, yeah, she said, she might have said something like, I told you so. And uh, I asked her to do it again and I resubmitted it and it was all good. Unfortunately, they wouldn't give me better marks, but um, I, I learned something of English. And I've done that for a lot of papers over time. So if you come across anything that I've written and the uh, grammar is not very good, that's because Rebecca hasn't read it and fixed it first. It's actually, the final part of that story is actually quite interesting. So we were, uh, Rebecca was uh, actually going into labor with Bradley um, and she was editing one of my papers. And it's really cool, right? She's so forgiving and patient. She didn't know she was in labor. She kept having these stomach cramps and pains and they kept coming and going in regular intervals, but she didn't know she was in labor. So that's how wonderful my wife is in case you missed that. So you see, pride is something that I struggle with. And it often brings us down, not just me, it brings all of us down. You see, if we're prideful, we don't make the corrections, we don't make the fixes, we don't make the edits. And we end up in life with lower scores and marks and successes than we could have otherwise achieved. It's a challenge, and I believe Jesus wants us to undo that in our lives. Let's turn Luke to eight, Luke 18. Let's have a look. Let's read it together from verse 9. He told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. So Jesus is interesting the way the message writes this. He tells the story to people who are complacent, complacently pleased. 
Ignorant, in fact, is probably best to write it. They were pleased with themselves, but actually had no real basis for being pleased with themselves. They were complacent. They missed the point. Like me, they thought their lives never needed a red pen or a green pen, never needed a correction. And on top of that, they saw the people around them and said, and, and felt that they were better than them because those people, they needed a lot of red pen. They needed a lot of correction. They needed a lot of edits in their lives. Their lives weren't very good. So let's turn to see how this works out in the two characters that Jesus presents in this story. Number one, the Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax man. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week and tithe on all my income. Remember, this is a spoken prayer, out loud. As the Bible says, it was posed. In fact, I'm not even sure you could consider it a prayer, considering the primary target for his words is the people around him, not God. I knew a guy once in high school, in my year, who used to tell people that he was six foot tall. He desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to be chosen for the school's basketball team, and so he would slide this into conversations. He would mention it to the sports teachers. But the thing was, I was actually six foot tall, and he was a good few inches shorter than me. The thing is, he felt like he wasn't good enough as he was. So he claimed to be taller than he was, quite ridiculously, as it appeared. And the weird thing was, he was a good basketball player. He didn't need to pretend to be taller than he was. Nevertheless, he felt inadequate. He felt unworthy and so boasted. So often when we see prideful posturing like this, whether it's in public, you know, Facebook, Twitter, that's what public looks like at the moment, doesn't it? Social media. Usually when we see prideful posturing like this, it's because deep down, someone feels inadequate. The Pharisee makes this attempt to overcome his inadequacy. He makes these pronouncements to make himself feel more adequate and worthy. He even fasts twice a week. You know what's interesting about that? It's not a religious requirement. It's not a legal requirement. He just does it to make himself feel better, or at least he says it to make himself feel better. Every extra religious practice he does, he considers to be another foundation stone in his own sense of worthiness. So that's the Pharisee. Let's have a look at the tax man. Meanwhile, the tax man, slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, says, God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. This guy is a tax man. He is most likely very wealthy and successful, only that he has become successful by cheating others. Now, he's slumped in the shadows. He is the opposite of posing. He has his face in his hands and he speaks to God, not to the people around. He actually prays. 
He doesn't compare himself to anyone. He doesn't seek to prove his own worth. He simply says, God, have mercy, forgive me, a sinner. This line, this prayer, tells us two things about what is going on in the mind of the taxman. Number one, he recognizes that he is morally bankrupt. He is not going to cut it. When it comes to good or bad behavior, he's got more bad than good. He is not going to make it into the good place. He's not going to pass any righteousness test. He's not going to pass any holiness test. He is a sinner. This is how he sees himself. Secondly, he recognizes that God is merciful. God is capable and God is willing of offering forgiveness, of giving righteousness, of giving acceptance, value and worth. He recognizes in this prayer and acknowledges that God considers him worthy enough to even offer him forgiveness. And with these two pieces of knowledge, these two trains of thought in his mind, he decides to ask. He decides to put it on the line and ask for forgiveness. And he receives it. Because Jesus comments, this tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself. When I started my college studies and I asked edit, uh, Rebecca to edit that first paper, I held on to my belief that I was above average in English that I was good at writing and I was well-educated and clever and whatever else, and I fell flat on my face. In the same way, if you refuse to acknowledge your need for God in life, if you stubbornly hold on to your own moral achievement as the foundation for your worthiness and worth and self-acceptance, you will fall flat on your face. The basis of your value and worth as a human being is not based on your gifts, your abilities, your behavior, your righteousness, your holiness. Jesus' parable here shows us that the true and solid foundation of your value and worth as a human being comes from God no matter how you posture. It is what God did, not what you have done. You see, 2,000 years ago or so, Jesus, God himself in the flesh, came and died on a cross for all people, including you. For you, your friends, your family, and the adulterer, the cheat, the taxman, the morally upright and the morally bankrupt, God died for all. Do you accept that? Do you believe that? Can you honestly pray with me or would you honestly pray with me? God, have mercy, forgive me, a sinner. This morning, wherever you are, I ask you to close your eyes, to think through those words a number of times 
God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. God, there are so many things in my life that I like to believe put me right before you, who, that, that elevate my worth before you. Lots of things, Lord, that I do and I say that I think are making me right with you, but help me, God, to remember that none of that will stand if it's not for the value you give me by dying for me on the cross. May that be the foundation of my understanding of myself and may I never posture and pride. May I be self-confident enough to acknowledge my mistakes. May it give me courage and vulnerability to live my true self, to deal with my hypocrisy, to give me freedom to worship in truth and to live a life of passion, I pray. Amen.